Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's stories take us from the attempts to sink the Tirpitz through a tale of survival straight out of Das Boot, to life through a child's eyes in occupied Holland, and on to an Arctic convoy with a dark secret. We begin this week with this story sent in by Joy Rice. Hi boys, love the show especially the political and economic aspects of the war, which you don't hear anywhere else. I come from the small village of Pill, on the outskirts of Bristol, which was heavily bombed in the war. My father spent a fair amount of time in the air raid shelter at school and home, and my auntie told him that during the first air raid, my great-grandfather visited the family home wearing a colander tied to his head with a scarf to check everyone was okay. When a German bomber came down nearby, the family all piled into the coal lorry to see the aircrew being rounded up by the police. On Good Friday 1941, after 13 hours in the air raid shelter, they called it the grave, my aunt came out to see an incendiary bomb in the garden and went back in pretty sharpish. But my main story is about my uncle Alan, recently deceased at 98. Alan joined the Fleet Air Arm in Scotland at the age of 19, in 1941, and served as telegraphist air gunner on swordfish and fairy barracudas in 830 and 827 squadrons. He flew in a Mark II barracuda in the attack on the Tirpitz at Anker in a heavily defended fjord in Norway. Later, he was greatly relieved when scrambled to attack the Scharnhorst that the Navy got there first. The dive bombings he took part in were very stressful and took their toll on some of the men. At one point, half the crews were in sickbay, which meant twice the flying for the rest. Training for Operation Tungsten, the first Tirpitz raid, was intense, and on the 3rd of April, 21 Barracudas were launched at 0400 hours to form the first wave, which flew at 200 feet above the sea before climbing for the attack. The first wave went in with bomb release at 2,500 feet to give increased penetrating power. The accuracy was such that the holes blown open by the 1,600-pound bombs would give access through the upper armour to the 500-pound bombs following. When the turn came for Alan's plane to dive, the angle was so steep he experienced negative G and hit his head on the canopy. The ship was by this time almost hidden in smoke and flame and the planes were under heavy fire from the 175mm shore batteries. As the last plane... Alan had the duty of broadcasting to the world that the attack had been carried out, which he did twice because on the first go, the plane was so low the trailing aerial was dragging through the sea. The ship sustained 23 hits and was severely damaged. Three more attacks took place. Alan went on all three, but none were successful as the defences were beefed up and smoke screens were used. Eventually, the ship was sunk by the RAF, but the continuous attacks meant she could never put to sea. Alan had several near misses and lucky escapes. 
Once, he was switched planes at the last moment and watched the plane he would have been in crash and kill all aboard. Another time, his tail was near severed by a mid-air collision and later he was sent to a plane only to find another radio gunner in the seat. The other gunner stayed in place and the plane crashed. On yet another occasion, a malfunction on takeoff saved him from flying adjacent to a plane which blew up in mid-air. On the fifth occasion, his plane was brought down in the drink by an RAF barrage balloon in a storm. His youthful habit of swimming in the North Sea helped him to reach the dinghy which had floated off. When he was picked up, he was put in the officer's sick bay, only to be turfed out as a mere rating. He used to say he was good enough to share an aluminium coffin with an officer, but not a hospital ward. It still rankled 70 years later. At a base dance, he was introduced to Cathy, a signals wren who later became his wife. She was also a remarkable woman who volunteered to sail out to Ceylon to help repatriate POWs. She used to tell us how, on a 12-hour train journey back home from Scotland, she learned of the Tirpitz raid and aircraft losses from a station newspaper vendor and guessed Alan was involved. It was an anxious journey until she heard he was safe the next day. They were a fabulous couple, and it was a great pleasure and privilege to entertain them for annual trips to our house until they became too infirm to travel. He was not the only combatant in the family. My Uncle Arthur landed on D-Day plus one and fought his way through Europe until the surrender. One day we were chatting about a trip to Holland, and he looked up to declare, Holland, dreadful place, full of mud and people shooting at you, and went back to his paper. He survived the fighting unscathed. His only injury was sustained from a bullet wound while training. He was stitched without anaesthetic. On every stitch he claimed, Love a duck! The lack of expletive explained by his Salvation Army upbringing. Best wishes. Joy Rice. Our next story comes from the US and is told by Gus Adamson. Hello, we have Ways team. My love and obsession for the Second World War defines a large part of who I am, both professionally and personally. As such, people often tell me snippets of their family histories in relation to the war. Through a mutual friend, I was introduced to a woman named Ingrid, whose father, as rumour had it, was a U-boat commander. Us being in Tennessee, my scepticism was high, but it turned out this was not far from the truth, and the man had one hell of an experience. His name was Walter Kohler. He was born in 1916 and raised on a farm outside of Lübeck along with his older brother Ludwig. Both left the farm and joined the Kriegsmarine at the first opportunity. Walter began the war as an ensign on board the Scharnhorst. He was awarded the Iron Cross second class for his actions during the sinking of the carrier HMS Glorious. Soon after this, when the Scharnhorst was laid up for repairs, Kohler joined the U-boat fleet and was assigned to U-541 initially operating out of Kirkenes, Norway. The U-boat conducted three patrols out of there, where it sank a single vessel, a Russian corvette, in the White Sea. In late 1941, U-451 was ordered to operate in the Mediterranean for its fourth war patrol. Following this patrol, Kohler was due to leave the boat and attend the Kommandanaten School, after which he would take command of his own submarine. But this never happened. U-451 left Kiel on the 21st of November 1941, stopped briefly at Lorient for replenishment before proceeding south. On the night of the 21st of December, it was cruising on the surface of the Gulf of Cadiz side of Gibraltar. Kohler, 
now an Oberleutnant, and three or four other crewmen were topside on the conning tower. At 0340 hours, a crewman spotted a plane no more than 30 metres away. They hadn't heard its approach over the sound of the diesels. It was too late and there was no time for evasive manoeuvres. Men scrambled from the hatch to crash dive as the aircraft, a British swordfish torpedo plane belonging to 812 Squadron, dropped two bombs. At least one bomb hit its mark as the boat seemed to lift out of the water and break in half before plummeting under the surface. Kohler was initially dragged down with the sub, but his life jacket brought him to the surface uninjured. He found himself floating alone in the darkness. After some time, he became aware of planes above him. These planes released flares as the dark silhouette of a ship came over the horizon. Spotlight shone from the ship, a British corvette, HMS Myosotis, scanning the sea until Kohler was spotted. Kohler was pulled from the water and lifted on deck where he was greeted by the skipper, Lieutenant Gerald Peter Shires Lowe, who extended his hand saying, We welcome you as our guest. We've been waiting for you for two days. Bletchley Park must have played a role in this, I think. Briefly interrogated, he was taken to Lieutenant Lowe's cabin, where they shared a glass of cognac and conversed as Kohler spoke fluent English. It was a night and a day before Myosotis made Gibraltar. Lowe and Kohler parted ways and Kohler entered captivity. He spent the remainder of the war in a POW camp in Canada near Calgary. Following the war, when he was returning home, he was pressed into service with the British military as a translator, which held him up for another six months. Finally, back in Germany, he met Ingrid's mother, whom he fell in love with, and married. Ingrid was a baby at this time. Her father had been killed on the Eastern Front. Work in Germany was hard to find, and Kohler's brother-in-law convinced him to emigrate to the US and go into the hotel business with him. He did just that, operating a hotel first in West Virginia and then in Florida. Some 20 years later, Kohler's brother Lutz was working for Volkswagen. One day in a meeting, a British man sitting next to him leaned in and said, Kohler, did you serve on a U-boat that was sunk during the war? No, but my brother Walter did. I think my father rescued your brother. Sure enough, the man was Lieutenant Peter Lowe's son. Kohler and the elder Lowe were put in touch with one another and in 1966 the two of them, along with their wives, met in New York City. They became fast friends and over the years visited one another's homes in Florida and the Isle of Man. Walter Kohler passed away in 1987. Best, Jack Gus Adamson. Next is this story from Derry Warners. Dear Alan James, Having been fascinated by the Second World War for as long as I can remember, I recently asked my father, Harry Warners, to write down his wartime memories for me, and I thought I'd share them with you and the independent company. Harry was born in March 1939, in the province of Trenthe, in the north of the Netherlands, and grew up on a small farm in Vries, not far from Elder Airfield, now Groningen Airport. He was only six when the Netherlands were liberated in May 1945. He's not sure exactly when any of these things happened, but here are some of his memories of the occupation and liberation. During the occupation, a couple of German soldiers were billeted at the farm, living in the front room during the last year and a half of the war. At the same time as the Germans were downstairs, there were people in hiding upstairs. They were hidden above the cattle stable and hay store in a specially built little room behind a false wall. 
They were a married couple from Limburg and a family from The Hague. We don't know how these people came to be hidden at my grandparents' farm. We're not aware of any links with the Dutch resistance, but there obviously must have been some sort of contact. My grandparents never spoke of this after the war, and my father never asked, as it wasn't really encouraged. Food rationing was first introduced in 1939, and living on a farm meant that rations could be supplemented by occasionally illegally slaughtering one of the animals. This had to be done in secret and after dark because it was a risky activity. If the German authorities found out, reprisals would follow. Farms were periodically inspected to verify that the number of animals registered still checked out. One of the Germans billeted with my grandparents, Ernst, was the son of a farmer himself, a missing home. At great risk to himself, he would warn them of upcoming checks in return for some of the meat which he sent home to his family in Germany. In their spare time, the German soldiers used the farm's vegetable garden for target practice, shooting up bottles and cans. Sometimes they let Harry have a go as well. He'd get in trouble with my grandmother, as she did not want him spending time with the Germans. She was worried in case he talked about things they must not find out about. While working on the land with my grandfather, there were several times that Harry had to hide in hedgerows or in ditches to take cover from dogfights over Aylder Airfield. By now, this must have been in 1944-45. Bullets would be everywhere, and he remembers the sound of them slamming into the ground nearby and hearing empty shells thud down. A few times, they found large shell casings in the attic of the farm, which had gone straight through the roof. One day, towards the end of the war, Harry was playing not far from home by the bridge across the Nord Willems Canal when a German soldier came speeding by on a bicycle. The soldier kicked Harry's toy wheelbarrow away from him and shouted for him to go home immediately. Frightened, Harry started running, just in time because the retreating Germans blew up the bridge to slow the advancing Allied soldiers. Big chunks of rubble crashed all around and ahead of Harry as he ran, even onto the farmhouse. Harry remembers that when the Allied soldiers were coming, the villagers picked all the flowers from their front gardens and threw them on the tanks and jeeps as they passed through. He remembers how he helped his mother pick and throw yellow daisies. One of his last memories of the Second World War is seeing German POWs taken away on bicycles tied behind army trucks and personnel carriers shortly after the liberation. To this day, yellow daisies remind him of his parents celebrating in the street in May 1945. Thanks for all the podcasts, live streams and other content over the last year. It's been great having something to look forward to every week. A proud, independent company, 10%er, Derry Warners. Our next story this week comes from Sam Purchase. Hi, Al, James, and we have Wade Elves. Mum and I have done some research into her father and my grandfather, able seaman Stephen Kerridge, and what we found out about his wartime service in the Navy was not at all what we expected. I never knew my grandfather. He died of cancer when Mum was very young. We know that he volunteered in late September 1939 and was first posted to the battleship HMS Barham. He appears to have spent the majority of the war darting about aboard Barham and Queen Elizabeth and ferrying LCIs to North Africa, presumably in advance of the invasion of Sicily. Later on, he crewed the LSI HMS Glenroy on D plus one in Normandy. One particular entry in his service record, however, stuck out. His time on the heavy cruiser Berwick on distant escort duty for the Russian convoys. 
I wanted to know more, and what I found was, it's safe to say, not at all what I was expecting. The convoy in question, JW61A, sailed for Russia on the 20th of October 1944. Going by what little I've heard of my grandfather's account, it was as miserable as one might expect for a journey over the top of the world as winter set in. Most of the day would be spent chipping ice off every surface it might cling to, i.e. everything, before returning inside to a single Navy issue blanket and lukewarm pilchards for dinner. I gather my grandfather made the near fatal mistake of using the word we when complaining about the conditions aboard. This drew the ire of an officer who accused him of threatening a mutiny. It doesn't seem to have landed him in any lasting trouble, as he appears on his record as temporary acting leading seaman later on. In any case, I'd rather hoped I could find out what vital war material he'd been helping ferry on this dangerous route to Russia. I searched, expecting it to be a laundry list of high-grade aviation fuel, Studebaker's American aluminium, or even tin pasta. It was then pretty sobering to read that convoy JW61, that my grandfather helped shepherd to Russia, was dispatched to deliver 11,000 Ukrainian Wehrmacht personnel captured during the Normandy campaign back into the hands of Stalin. As a family, we are immensely proud of all my grandparents. Learning of this, if nothing else, acted as a reminder that in wartime many acts of heroism, bravery or just plain getting on with the job are carried out with no say in what you're doing. It was Steve Kerridge, the grandfather I never met, who pushed me to finish my MA in naval history, discovering what he did and went through. My grandmother sent off for his Arctic Star and received it in 2014. Thanks for everything you and the team are doing. The live streams are the highlight of my week, and it's great to have a merry band of the fellow afflicted to bang on about the war with. Cheers, Sam Purchase. Our final tale for this episode of Family Stories is from Rick Lewis. Hi guys, love the podcast. It makes my journeys to and from work so much more interesting. My granddad, Ron Hogger, was in 75th Heavy Highland Regiment, Royal Artillery, and served in North Africa, Sicily and Italy. He regularly reminded anyone who would listen that the army he served with was made up of many nationalities and that the German army were excellent soldiers too, although he had few good things to say about the Americans. One of his regular tales was when digging a foxhole, an American officer stood above him and said, and my granddad would always put on his best New York accent, you don't want to be afraid of war, soldier. At which point, a shell came whistling over and Grandad took cover. When he looked up above his foxhole, he could see the American running in blind panic, legs and arms flying like the clappers. Hope you can squeeze this one in somewhere. Grandad would be tickled. Many thanks, Rick Lewis. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, and shared with our audience, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. That's wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on our members' site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.